Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Wiley Cash, New York Times bestselling author of the novels A Land More Kind Than Home and This Dark Road to Mercy. Today we're discussing his most recent novel, The Last Ballad, published by HarperCollins. Wiley Cash, welcome to Working History. Thank you so much for having me. I I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, Could you start us off by reading a passage from The Last Ballad? Absolutely. I think that I will read something from how the the novel begins to give the reader of of who the, the protagonist is. Saturday, May 4th, 1929. Ella May knew she wasn't pretty, had always known it. She didn't have to come all the way down the mountain from Tennessee to Bessemer City, North Carolina to find that out. But here she was now, and here she'd been just long enough for no other place in her memory to feel like home, but not quite long enough for Bessemer City to feel like home either. She sat on the narrow bench in the office of American Mill Number 2, the wall behind her vibrating with the whir of the card machines, rollers, and spinners that raged on the other side, with lint hung up in her throat and lungs like tar, reminding herself that she'd already given up any hope of ever feeling rooted again, of ever finding a place that belonged to her and she to it. What brought you to this story of Ella Mae Wiggins and the Gastonia, North Carolina strike of 1929? Well, I was raised in Gastonia. I was born in 1977. Okay. And family, they were all uh, mill people, uh, I guess you can say. My my father was from one county over in Cleveland County, North Carolina. He grew up in Shelby, and he was born in a mill village. And my mother uh, grew up in a mill village in Gastonia, not too far from, from Lore. Her people had come up from South Carolina upstate, uh, Ennery, Cowpens, and my father's family had come from Western North Carolina up in the hills and then North Georgia. And so they all kind of settled in these mill towns. And uh, I grew up in Gastonia without really an awareness of mill life or mill culture because the mills had either closed up or moved on or, or they were being used as storage facilities or being renovated into apartments or they were condemned and closed down. And they were just kind of these ghostly buildings that you drive past with mm-hmm. He's growing up out of the roofs. And, you know, my parents, you know, having been born in mill villages, wanted to get out of there as soon as they could. And so they they aimed for the suburbs. And so I I now live in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I'm raising my daughters in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, my my dad's parents left the farms and found hope in the mills. And then my parents left the mills and 
saw the, 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 the suburbs as some kind of place of status or a place to settle. And now I'm still in the suburbs and I, I feel a little – stuck's the wrong word. I'm very fortunate to have the life that I have and that my parents worked as hard as they did to give me this life. Mm-hmm. But, I, but my life compared to that of my parents and, and certainly my grandparents and certainly my great-grandparents – feels a little bit inauthentic. It feels like, you know, how do I get back to the real thing? How do I get back to the original struggle that that gave my family some kind of identity? And I was raised in Gastonia not knowing anything about the Lorry strike. My parents didn't know about it. It wasn't being taught in schools. My mother's maiden name is Wiggins. Huh. My grand, uh, his Harry Wiggins, was 22 years old. The summer that a woman who shared his last name made headlines around the world for leading a strike where she was eventually murdered. Mm-hmm. He worked mill just a few miles away in South Carolina. He never mentioned her name. And so when I found out about the strike in graduate school in Louisiana, I was first really curious about why, about what it was, what happened, who was involved, what were the competing forces. Second, I was, I was, I was curious about why I never heard about it or was taught this story. And then third, I just felt really compelled to try to represent this story. So, so those are kind of the factors that turned me toward the, the strike and writing about it. Okay, and so how did you approach researching the facts of the story? Because it seems like this is a story that in a lot of ways is really close to your family, but one that was very much hidden, right? So how did you get to this story as kind of a a history project? Well, there's a great book called Gastonia 1929 by an Australian researcher named John Sammons. UNC Press put Mm -hmm. it out, uh, I want to say in the 90s. That's probably, it's a pretty slender book. But it's probably the most down-the-middle, uh, well-researched, uh, well, well-reported um, uh, study of the strike itself. Uh, so I really, really relied on that one. But then I did a lot of contextualizing uh, in my research about the American Communist Party in the 1920s and 1930s, mm-hmm. uh, um, socialism in the 1920s and the 1930s. Uh, but also the history of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. What made people like Ella's family leave East Tennessee and go into the lumber camps and places like Bryson City, North Carolina? Mm-hmm. What leave? What was mill life like at the turn of the century? What kind of life did Ella and her family find when they when they came down the mountain uh, into a place like Cowpen, South Carolina, or Gastonia, North Carolina? And so a lot of my academic research was, you know, the, the, the research on the strike is not scant, but, but it's, not, it, it's, not, it's not a topic that, that a lot of people have done really deep dives on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotal, anecdotal stories. Um, there's some great music that came out of the strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was working with some pretty limited uh, historical resources on the strike itself. Um, Fred Beal, who was the leader of the strike, wrote an autobiography of sorts that I read, uh, read that. Um, and then Ella May's great granddaughter, a woman named Christina Horton wrote, uh, a nonfiction critical study of the strike and Ella's role in it called martyr of the Lori mill strike. Uh, that came out, uh, I want to say in 2016. So, mm-hmm. or 15. So I read that in the waning days of, of the edits and, and some of the revisions but in terms of scholarly research, there's just there's just not a lot. There's some there's some newspaper uh, commentary. There's some newspaper stories mm-hmm. that I cross, and and I reproduced uh, several of those in in last ballad. Some of those were verbatim reproductions of newspaper accounts or 
or advertisements that were taken out uh, denouncing the strikers and encouraging violence against the strikers and against the union. Um, but one thing that I did that was probably the most beneficial, well, two things that I did was I went to the music of the time. There's mm-hmm. some great Gastonia music that came out of the strike, and I had I had no idea that people were writing songs about my hometown. Right. And uh, the second thing I was able to do was to go to these places because they're still there. The Lorraine Mill is still there. The mill that Ella worked at in Bessemer City is still there. The the African-American community that she lived in in Bessemer City is still there. The area where the strikers' headquarters was and, and Gastonia is still there. So you can walk these places and you can see what it felt like there on an evening in May when the strike would have been happening. You can you can go there and feel it. So the fact that those places are still alive, I, I hope, made the novel feel as if it were living. Great. How then did you take that aspect of your research, the, the facts of the story, if you want to call them out, and uh, approach sort of translating that into a narrative, into a story, and to balance all the complexities of that historical record with telling a cogent and compelling story, which, um, in my opinion, you did really well. Um, but, you know, how do you do that? You know, because it's, it's tricky to, to get that balance just right. Sure. Yeah. And that, that's a great question. Thank you for saying that. What I tried to do was I tried to learn the facts of the strike uh, to a degree that they felt like the facts of my life or facts of events that I had experienced or the facts of events that I had known for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of time studying the strike, the personalities in the strike, the major movements of the strike, um, the really important dates of the strike, Ella's role in the strike, the way the strike leaders, um, Fred Beale and, and some other people, um, kind of co-opted Ella's personality and the power of her character and her strength as an individual perhaps manipulated that a little bit, maybe took advantage of that a little bit. Um, I tried to research and internalize and understand the impulses of the mill owners and the mill managers. What was at stake for them? And then the participants in the strike, you know, many of them, these fiercely uh, individual uh, mountaineer spirits from, from Appalachia who are co- who have come down looking for the good life promised by the mill barkers who the mills mm-hmm. set up mills. And they get down and, and, you know, they don't find the good life they were promised. And now the union wants them to lay down their rifles and uh, pick up a, a placard and, and march in a, in a, in a strike. And mm-hmm. that doesn't appeal to them. You know, these are warriors. These are hunters. These are people who are want to fight. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the, they, the, the union doesn't want them to fight the way that they feel led to fight. And so I tried to understand all of these things. And what I think history does, nonfiction books, history books, scholarly books, they're wonderful at giving – obviously, they're wonderful at giving you an idea of what happened. But what they're really great at doing is laying out the facts Mm -hmm. of events. They're they're great at at laying out the triggers of history and the rapids and shoots of history that show what led us to to the moments that that, that the nation or the world finds itself in. But I think what history can do is – is to get inside of those events and look for impulses and look for causality and explore the depths of human nature. And so mm-hmm. that's what I really tried to do with the fictional aspect of this. So, mm-hmm. for example, I knew there was a raid on the strikers' headquarters. 
On Friday, June 6, 1929, I knew there was a raid on the strikers' headquarters, and I knew the raid was led by two off-duty police officers, a guy named Albert Roach and a guy named Tom Gibson. Mm -hmm. These two off-duty Gastonia police officers had spent the day at an enormous Confederate rally in Charlotte. 150,000 people had shown up in Charlotte that weekend to honor the Confederacy. And so these two off-duty police officers, one of whom had been suspended by the police chief, spent all day drinking in Charlotte. They were drunk. Mm -hmm. They came back to Gastonia. And without being called, these two off-duty police officers decided to go down to the strikers' uh, tent city and, and the strikers' headquarters and start trouble. So those are facts. Those are the indisputable facts of those events. But what fiction allows me to do is to discern the impulse that would cause those men to do that. Mm -hmm. I can look at that set of facts and say, okay, these two guys are drunk. They've been at a Confederate rally all day. What would cause them to go to a place where women and the fear of minorities are gathering together, being led by communists to ask for a living wage? What would cause them to go down there and cause trouble? Mm -hmm. Let's draw a straight line from that Confederate rally to the impulse that would cause these guys to go down and cause trouble. Right. And that's what fiction allows me to do. And and I found myself that I found that I was given that opportunity several times in the novel, whether it was through looking at Ella May's impulses, what would cause this woman who's afraid of starving and losing her children? What would cause her to walk away from her paycheck to go join a, a union strike? You know, fear would cause her to do that. Desperation would cause her to do that. Well, what does that feel like? What does that look like? What does that taste like? And 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 those human elements really. Uh, those are the things that fiction allows me to explore. Right. So let's talk a little bit more about LMA Wiggins. Uh, you gave us a, you know, in, in the reading that you opened up the, the interview with, a little snippet sort of to get a, a, a snapshot of her. But could you talk a little bit more about who she was, how her story in a lot of ways was very common for mill folk, uh, particularly for women um, in the in the Piedmont mills at this time, um, how her story maybe was uncommon Sure. Yeah. So her she, she was born. Uh, her, her, her father was uh, a tenant farmer in East Tennessee. And, you know, this is she's born in 1900. And this is a time in Appalachia when we see the barter economy, the trade economy giving way to a cash based economy. And as, as the cash based cash based economy comes in and, and begins to take root, these people suddenly find themselves in need of cash money. And so families like Ella's moved into the lumber camps around uh, Western North Carolina, and they were being paid cash money. They lived in string houses. Ella and her mother took in laundry uh, uh, at, the, at, the, at the lumber camp. They sang songs. They sang old ballads, uh, popular tunes at the time where they were cleaning clothes. She had a couple of siblings. But her parents passed away. I believe her mother passed away from a flu and her father uh, passed away from an accident. Mm -hmm. And as her siblings began to drift off and do other things, Ella meets a a very attractive, very um, experienced, very manipulative man named John Wiggins. And John Wiggins convinces Ella to leave the mountains uh, where living is hard and to go down to the mills and the Piedmont in the upstate of South Carolina. The mills, this is around the time of World War One, where the demand for cotton cloth is 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 exploding for for uniforms and parachutes and tank tread and all of these things. 
And so the mills are booming in places like Gastonia. They, they can't hire enough people. Wages are through the roof. And they're sending barkers up into the hills and they're saying, come down to the mills. We'll give you a church. We'll give you a house. We'll give you a school. We'll give you a job. We'll give you everything you could ever ask for. We'll give you a company store. You know, life is waiting for you. Leave this dangerous, deadly work in the lumber camps. And we have to remember the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is also the whispers of that are beginning. Mm -hmm. And these lumber camps are the, the fear of them closing and the fear of opportunity drying up and people are restless. And so Ella makes this, this, this migration from the hills to the mills, this migration that still, in my opinion, hasn't really been given the attention it deserves by, by scholars here in America. She leaves the hills and she comes down to the mills and she settles in a place called Cowpens, North Carolina. She works on a farm there. She works in the mill, Cowpens Manufacturing Company. And John is – her husband John is kind of aroused about. He's unfaithful. He leaves the family for long periods of time. Ella's young. Uh, I believe she's around 16 or 18 years old. Uh, she begins having children in relatively quick succession. The real Ella May gave birth to nine children, and she had four of them die from Pellegra and whooping cough. Mm -hmm. um, so she lived a life of intense tragedy, and she lived a life of great uh, physical strain and great physical violence uh, with John um, and her work. She was always on the verge of starvation. Her children were always on the verge of, of illness or starvation. And like many people, they would move around a lot looking for a better paycheck or better working conditions or more freedom or a better work schedule or, or, a, or a job that would give them more time at home to take care of sick kids. And so eventually Ella and John and the children found their way north into Gaston County. They went through a succession of mills. And by the spring of 1929, Ella was living in an African-American community called Stumptown in Bessemer City, North Carolina. And she was working at one of the only integrated mills in the region. And the mill wasn't integrated because the owners were progressive. The mill was integrated because wages were so low and white people who could afford not to work in American Mill Number no. 2 did not work there. Mm -hmm. Well, American Mill Number no. 2 was literally one of Ella's last resorts. She had walked off jobs. She had spoken her mind one too many times. She had missed work because of children's illnesses. And so this is literally her last job, and she's one of the only white families living in Stumptown, and John has abandoned the family for the final time. And so she, she's desperate, and when she hears about this strike, she learns about the union's list of demands, $20 minimum wage. Uh, well, she earns $9 a week, so $20 a week is something unthinkable. 40-hour work week was a demand. Well, she works 72 so it's this, you know, sanitary housing is a demand. Um, equal pay for equal work, the end to the stretch out, the end to the hang clock, all these labor practices that really had exploited workers once, once unemployment skyrocketed when the war was over. Mm -hmm. And so she finds herself in a situation where she needs money. She needs, uh, she needs a 40-hour work week. She needs some, some consistency in her life. And and so she was a pretty, you know, she was a pretty, it's a pretty standard story of poverty, of being shackled to a system of poverty. She literally couldn't afford to go look for another job. She couldn't afford the time off to look for another job. So, you know, the job was killing her. Not having a job would kill her. Mm -hmm. But what made Ella May different was, was one thing that really stands out about Ella was that she could read. She could also sing. And she was also wildly intelligent and tough. 
And so one of the things that really uh, attracted – made her very attractive to union organizers was that she had this fantastic story. They found it to be somewhat exotic, but her story wasn't so so exotic in that she came down from the mountains and lost children. A lot of people had made that journey. But Ella could talk about it. Ella mm-hmm. could tell the story of it. Ella could testify to it. What she could also do was she could sing about it and she could write lyrics about it. And she could take well-known songs of the era and change the lyrics around and make them be about her struggle and her experience and the experience of mill workers. That was something that no one else was really doing. And, you know, unions, especially uh, northern labor unions, had always really relied on music and singing on the picket line and an oral narrative. So in the South, that's something that people were doing anyway. Mm -hmm. And so Ella being able to testify to her experience, her being able to sing about her experience, especially to popular tunes, really set her apart. And it immediately made her the face of the strike in 1929. And, and it made her dangerous to the mills. And that endangered her life. Mm-hmm. And then she'd ultimately be killed for it at the end. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So if we could shift gears just a tiny bit, um, still talking about, you know, characters in the book, another really intriguing character is that of Hampton Haywood. And in a lot of ways, he figures almost as you know predominantly as Ella does in a lot of ways in this story. And he's, um, for those who haven't read the book yet, is a African-American unionizer. He's born in the South, but he's based in the North, and he's sent to North Carolina during the um, Gastonia strike. So could you talk a little bit more about that character, you know, number one, how you sort of conceptualized it, because he wasn't a real person, if I'm correct about that, right? And then number two, you know, how does he become sort of another vehicle for understanding these layered themes of race and class and violence that you engage with throughout the novel? So Hampton was based on kind of an amalgam of a couple of characters. There were a couple of African-American organizers who were sent down by the National Textile Workers Union. Um, The National Textile Workers Union was the labor arm of the American Communist Party. And the American Communist Party was pushing integration. They were pushing uh, gender equality, racial equality. Um, But on the ground in Gastonia, gender equality and racial equality were things that just weren't going to fly with the the strikers themselves, Um, many of whom were were deeply culturally racist, uh, many of whom had never had any exposure to to African-Americans or any kind of diversity um, who came from very traditional paternalistic households and, and family traditions. And so Fred Beal, who was a a union union organizer from New Bedford who participated in the strikes there and the strike at Passaic, he, he was trying to tell the national party and, and the New York union, the New York headquarters look, you can't, we can't integrate the union down here. It's going to blow this thing apart. Well, the union kept sending down organizers. And there were a couple of examples where strikers themselves met black organizers at the train station in Charlotte and refused to allow them to get off the train under threat of violence. Mm-hmm. And there were, there was at least one organizer who did come down, who did try to organize African-Americans. And I, I based Hampton on his character. And I wanted Hampton to be uh, kind of an expatriate, an expat from from the South, someone who had fled the South during the Great Migration after Reconstruction, after Reconstruction fails and the rise of the Jim Crow South uh, immediately after. 
Um, his father in the, in the novel, his father shoot and kills a white man who's come to literally shoot and kill him. So uh, uh, Hampton's father murders this white guy before he can murder him. And they flee in the middle of the night. And his father is stopped. The train is stopped and his father is taken off by the police and they never see him again. And they mm-hmm. flee to New York City. And Hampton becomes a Pullman Porter. He gets involved um, with the Pullman Porters Union, which was a socialist union. He meets uh, a young communist uh, labor organizer named Sophia and gets involved in the National Textile Workers Union and gets involved in the American Communist Party. And they convince him to go down south and to try. And he sees it as an opportunity to kind of save something about the south that he lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, He sees it as an opportunity to resurrect something about his father's struggle. And so he perhaps naively comes down south with with great misgivings and he finds himself caught up in just a racialized, violent inferno. And I I, I tried to use Hampton's character to show all of these competing forces and all of these forces that were at cross purposes with one another, not only uh, striker union uh, against ownership, but also within the union itself. Mm-hmm. There, there was a lot of tension within the union. And Ella really fought to integrate the union. But the union pushed back. Mm-hmm. The union, Fred Beale said, you know, look, that's going to blow this thing up. And Ella believed that poverty united strikers more than race could ever deny them. And so Ella was eventually, once the union moved to Bessemer City, the Bessemer City local, Ella integrated the Bessemer City local against the will of the union. She, she, she pushed for, for integration. So she was a real revolutionary. She was a, a feminist leader. She was a civil rights leader before people used those terms. Mm-hmm. Do you have a character in the novel that was your favorite to write? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I think that as a, as a fiction writer, you know, there was a, a North Carolina novelist named Charles Chestnut, novelist and short story writer and essayist, an Af- African-American writer, born in 1858 and died in 1932. He said all, uh, all fiction is the power of rearranging your memory. Mm-hmm. So I think every character that I create, a little bit of me or a little bit of someone that I know goes into them, even, even the, the villains or the people that the reader perceives as the villain. You know, Even the villain thinks that he or she is the, the hero of her own life. And so I think that all of the characters resonate with me in one way or another. But the characters that I really like are the characters who face some kind of inner dilemma. So I really liked Virgil, Virgil Park down in Cowpens, this kind of insecure, fearful alcoholic who marries a deeply Christian woman who ends up getting caught up with John Wiggins and a uh, a moonshining operation and gets to know Ella and eventually has a hand in excommunicating the, the Wiggins family from Cowpens. I really found him to be an interesting character. I also liked uh, Hampton a lot. Mm-hmm. I thought Hampton was a character that was uh, challenged. I thought he was a character that was flawed. I thought he was a character who desperately wanted to do the brave, good thing but who keenly understood the societal forces that were aligned against him in a way that few of the other characters did. And that was a direct result of being an African-American man in, in 1920 South um, and the threat of lynch law. He, he, knew, he knew the stakes and he knew what, 
what he was getting into, and he knew there was a target on his back the minute he stepped off the train um, there in Salisbury. And so he was a really interesting character to me. I also really liked uh, Catherine and Richard, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the mill owners who want to believe themselves to be deeply progressive, but whose progressivism feels oftentimes like paternalism and convenience. Mm-hmm. But they were characters who were in conflict with one another. They were characters who were in conflict with their own conscience. And they, they, those, were, those were interesting characters to write. Before we wrap up, do you see any uh, particular lessons maybe that we could take away from the story of LMA Wiggins and the, the Lori strike, particularly in the context of the challenging, to use that word loosely, political moment that we find ourselves in right now? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, people have asked me about Last Ballad and the strike in 1929. They say, do you find it ironic that history is repeating itself? And I always have to say, well, History is not repeating itself. To repeat shows there's some kind of reset mm-hmm. or some restart. There's never been a reset. 1929 has just kept happening. Uh, we've, we've just continued on a straight line. And, you know, we, we still have uh, – uh, we, we still don't have equal pay for equal work. Uh, we still don't have uh, full voting rights for, for African Americans and minorities in this country. Uh, we still don't have full gender equality, and we still have racist and neo-Nazis and neo-Confederates marching in the street um, in places like Charlottesville. Ella May was, was killed because uh, a racist on, and a group of, of anti-protesters uh, stopped her, her caravan and, and drove a car into a truck in which she was traveling and turned it over and shot her. So she was essentially killed because a white supremacist drove a car into a group of protesters. Hmm. Heather Iyer was killed in, in 20, 2017 when a group of uh, a white supremacist drove a car into a group of protesters. And so, you know, Gastonia is now 1929 is now. And, and there are there are not any lessons in that, but there needs to be a realization in that there needs to be an ownership of that, that. That these things that we thought were over, these issues that we thought we had fixed, we're, we're naive in thinking that. And that's a really, really incredible thing to sort of leave us with and ponder as we as we wrap up our interview. So, uh, Wiley Cash, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on this episode of Working History. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Wiley Cash, the New York Times bestselling author of the novels, The Last Ballad, A Land More Kind Than Home, and This Dark Road to Mercy. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. <music>